flipped around here uh, while we were out without a building for uh, uh, a number of months. We, it was a great opportunity to remind ourselves that the, the people are the church, not the building is the church. So I asked my daughter to make us a t-shirt. And so uh, you can't have a fire without having a t-shirt. So we got the t-shirt. It just says, I am Zion Church. Then a scripture was uh, very meaningful to us at that time uh, from Isaiah, talking about beauty from ashes. And, uh, and so that was a great hope that we clung to. Everybody loved that phrase, beauty from ashes. And uh, so uh, we kind of kept using it, this and that and everything. And then one of the things we lost was a, uh, a cookbook that we had put together. And so we got to remake the cookbook. We lost all these copies. We got to remake the cookbook. And so, yes, the name of the cookbook is Beauty from Ashes. Cool. The cookbook. Very cool. Um, Sometimes people just aren't thinking. Are, are the recipes so good that even if you burn them horribly, they still taste okay? They, uh, I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that if you blow the recipe, you will not get beauty. You will just get ashes. Um, we're going to continue on studying here. Talking about uh, trials and God using trials in our life. And as we move forward, uh, we're just going to keep pressing through some verses. You'll notice you're getting a bird's eye view. We're getting some of the big themes. Uh, and again, it'd be great for you to read more of this and to study more as you go along. Uh, this section I'm, uh, I'm calling... Be Holy? Actually, Be Holy. I've got the wrong... Uh, that should say, Be Holy, up there, uh, which is a, a part of the text that comes to us. The challenge is to, uh, it comes in verse 15. Huh? <laughs> I'll get through puberty one of these days. <laughs> all right. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Uh, for it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Uh, God has saved us with an eternal love. A part of his work in our life is to shape us and mold us through trials and trouble. And uh, as we move forward in the text, we see this call to maturity and uh, to grow in Christ. So that's what we're going to look at today a little bit. Why don't we have a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll dig into this. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the great day. We've enjoyed the chance to, uh, to spend the day together, to enjoy having fun together and thinking together and growing together. The seminars were a challenge to think about this world and ourselves uh, the way that you think about this world and ourselves. And now we pray you guide our thoughts as we uh, come to First Peter. Help us to uh, see, uh, again, ourselves and the world a bit more the way you do. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, maturity is uh, something that we're all working on. Ask my wife. I'm still working, you know, quite a bit on that. Uh, but someday I will grow up when I'm dead, I guess. Um, there was a particular time of growing up in my life that was a real challenge, uh, a kind of a test in my life of, uh, of maturity. I, uh, I mentioned that I was a, before I was a pastor, I was a school teacher. And uh, I was a very young school teacher. I was straight out of college teaching high schoolers. And so literally, some of the students in my class were four years younger than me. That, that could be kind of a challenge. And so uh, what do you do? Come on, what do you do when you need to be mature, right? Come on. Yell. You, grow you a try beard. not to yell. Say it louder. You grow a beard. You grow a mustache. <laughs> I had the, you think this is bad. 
Okay, fast forward, you know, reverse 25 years, and it was really bad. It was just very kind of thin and spindly, but by golly, you grow a mustache, and you try to, you know, look a little older. And then the other thing you do is you have people call you Mr. Kearns, right? None of this stew stuff. There's going to be Mr. Kearns. And then you have a good plan. You walk in, and you got the plan. And my plan was I wanted to get to know everybody's name really quickly. So I'm going to assert control. I'm going to get the plan. I'm going to have, see, we're going to have a seating chart. So I know where you're at. I can look at the seating chart, take attendance quickly, and I can learn your name. And within a week, I was going to have everybody's name learned. And they'd be impressed that I, that Mr. Kearns knew their name. We're charging ahead, having a great time. So everything goes great the first day. The second day, uh, we walk in, and uh, everything's going according to form. People are walking to their desk, and somebody new walks in who wasn't there the first day. So I kind of explain. We get the seating chart. And uh, the, these seats were taken, but here, these are the ones that are open. But he just sat down in one of the seats that was already taken anyway. Now, yeah, see? So what do you do? What do you do? No, you don't yell. You just, you just kind of slowly walk over and you say, no, I know you, didn't, you weren't here yesterday, but that, that seat is taken by somebody else. And so you just take all these, here's these other choices, right? And what does the student do at that point? That's he says. No, this is where I'm sitting. And there are students around at this point, and I'm. Uh, it's, it's the second day. I'm 21 years old. It's the second day of school. I've got to, you know, stay calm. So I, no, you don't understand. The seating chart. I explained it to. Maybe he didn't hear me. I explained it all again, and this is the way it works. And these other choices. Man, I ain't going anywhere. Now we've got a full-blown confrontation. And now the whole class is tuned in. It's the teacher, the newbie, versus the senior. What's going to happen? Now, I taught English. What do you know about English classes? It's nap time. They may be all of those things, but they are not electives. You need English to graduate from high school. So I know at this point, he's a senior, and he needs this class, and he's making trouble, and it's a test in front of everybody. And so I, for the third time, I come to him, and I say, no, I'm the teacher, you're the student, these are your choices, it's either do what I say, or you can leave. Any guesses as to where things went from there? Well, he didn't just leave. Uh, yeah, he, uh, he stood up called me a few choice words, dropped the F-bomb, and stomped out of the room, out of the classroom. And as he left, of course, I said, if you leave, you're not coming back. And he left. Now, again, I said that knowing that he needs the class. Now, why is growing up so hard? Why was that such a big deal? Why is it a big deal to move from this chair to that chair? I don't know. Why was it a big deal for me on that very first day and not just say, oh, well, I guess somebody else can sit in a different chair. Two people were growing up that day. <laughs> a student was growing up, and a teacher was growing up. And both of us had decisions to make. Later on, I shared my story in the English lounge with the other English teachers. And uh, just, you know, out of panic, I said, what did, I, did I do the right thing? What did I do? This was, I couldn't believe this happened. And, they, and you know what they said? They said, oh, that's the best thing that could ever happen. What do you mean? Oh, I said that 
That'll be the easiest class you'll have for the whole semester because they know that when you say something, you mean it. And in your eyes, you became the authority in that classroom today. In fact, then they told me another little secret. Some of your teachers practice this. Some of your teachers actually, early on in the semester, intentionally look for that situation so they can establish their authority in the classroom and everybody can see visibly who's boss. Now, what does it take? Here's the question for tonight. What does it take to grow up? Uh, and, and what does it mean to grow up in Christ? And one of the first things I want you to hear is that we're all growing up. Um, that was one of the great things I heard in the seminars to, uh, seminar today. Uh, Barry was reminding us that the gospel is something we need all the time. It isn't just something that we come to Christ through, but growing up in Christ is a constant process. And the main tool that God uses is to learn and believe more deeply every day the gospel. So let's look at this call to, uh, to grow up, the call to maturity, verses uh, 13 and 14. He, Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you have when you live in ignorance. Um, we are called to be mature. And uh, we're all trying to be mature, aren't we? Uh, it's, uh, I'm not sure he wanted to do that, but uh, that's uh, Lindsay and Bryson trying to look grown up, right? That's that's all of us. We're all trying to trying to look grown up. And the call to maturity comes to all of us. He says, "Gird up." Uh, it says actually, what it says is, uh, "Prepare your minds for action." And sometimes the Bible does isn't as literal as it could be. What that literally means in the Greek is, "Gird up the loins of your mind." If you're going to grow up, okay, you got to be ready for this. And uh, you know, if you're in the ancient world, you don't have pants. You have some kind of a garb that can get your feet caught up. So if you're going to get moving, if you're going to get prepared, you grab your garment, tuck it in your belt, you're girded, you're ready for action. He says, okay, now, here's a mixed metaphor. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind ready, because if you're going to, if you're going to become mature, there's going to be some work involved. And what is that work? Well, there's going to be the pull of the trials and the glories that you face, but we're called in verse 14 to be children of obedience. Children of obedience. Um, now, as we look at that phrase, in, in this process of growing in maturity, he says to set your hope on something. As you're growing and maturing, what do you set your hope on? And I want us to think about that. As you engage friends in the world, what do people tend to set their hopes on? And maybe you could take that question with you to blog time tonight. Um, Sometimes people set their hopes on their own goodness, their own honesty. This is my daughter, Lindsay. We thought this was funny because uh, we went to park at this one place, and the church had an honesty box for parking. Instead of, you know, instead of a meter, you just put money in the honesty box. But notice the honesty box is empty daily. You don't, they only trust you so much. <laughs> uh, the, uh, Sometimes we trust in our own goodness. We trust in our own honesty. We trust in the fact that we, okay, but you're good Presbyterians. You know that that's, that's not good. You're not good enough. We can't trust in our own honesty or goodness enough. 
set your hope on, she was at Oxford studying at that time. And we live in a culture that sets its hope on education. Maybe I'm smart enough. I can get this thing figured out. And so we set our hopes on more knowledge and, and uh, perhaps a degree or our intellect. Set your hope on, well, that's Lindsay again. Uh, set your hope on government. That's supposed to be a Roman soldier. Uh, set your hope on government. Maybe government is the one who can take care of all my problems. They can take care of me and meet my needs. And, uh, and I want you to think about that tonight, again, during blog time. What do people set their hopes on? Uh, this is just a short list. The Bible says, but whatever was to my profit, whatever I set my hopes on, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. What are you setting your hope on? Um, and notice, uh, Paul says your best efforts don't cut it. Even your very, very best efforts aren't good enough. Um, in fact, this was another sign we enjoyed there. Uh, they have poopy dog laws in, uh, in England, but they have such a wonderful English way of saying it. And so there's this lovely sign that says, no fouling with a dog and the little poo-poo behind him. And just in case you can't tell, it's doggy poo-poo. There's little smell marks. <laughs> so you know that's what that is. And so they remind you, no fouling. There's like a hand. Yeah, well, that's the, uh, that's the quaint English way of saying it. The reason this sign is up here, I like to remind us that your best efforts don't cut it. You see that stuff behind the dog? That's what this word really means. That's what it is. The Bible says, you know, it's funny, the Bible is not G-rated, it's not PG-rated, it's, it's rather interesting at various points. Somebody asked me if the, I'm not sure which word I should use. Um, I'll just say poopy. <laughs> On the farm, uh, we use other words from time to time. But uh, somebody asked me, again, how graphic the Bible gets. And the Bible basically says that all of your good works, whatever you thought was of profit, whatever you thought was great, and commended yourself to God, and you could stand before God and say, hey, look at me. Paul says, all that stuff that he has accomplished, whatever was to my profit for the sake of Christ, I consider now. best stuff on the best day when I come to Jesus is worthless poop. Uh, now that that isn't a fun message, is it? It isn't a fun message. Uh, but it's the truth. And so he Paul, Peter wants us in 1 Peter to set our hopes on something solid. And what is solid? Um, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Uh, the gifts. 
Grace is a gift that God gives us, and the gift of God's grace is to be the source of hope and power. This is the one good thing you can point to in your life. You can point to the gift of the gospel in Christ, and you need to set your hope fully on that. And the only thing I can say is if you're setting your hope on anything else, you will be disappointed. You will be disappointed, but to set your hope on Christ. And when you do that, then the power of the gospel begins to work in you. And uh, he begins to talk then about the motivation to maturity. And this is the passage we read. Just as he who calls you is holy, so be holy in all of you, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. This is the motivation. Uh, the motivation to maturity. He goes on, he says, Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Uh, the motivation comes to us in a variety of ways. And notice that the motivation is not that I try hard, and I'm becoming a better person. In fact, the motivation is to look in different directions. The motivation to maturity comes from the character of God. And so to, to learn who God is and to understand the character of God. He who called you is holy, so be holy. Uh, that's why it's important to study and understand who God is and, and to read through the Bible. So you see the, the great pictures of God and his character all throughout the scripture. By the way, some people say that, well, in the Old Testament, God seems very judgmental. In the New Testament, God seems all about love. Jesus is always about love. And, uh, and you need to, again, read your Bible very carefully because in the Old Testament, God constantly reveals himself as loving. Uh, God is constantly saving and redeeming and, uh, and interceding. And listening when people cry out to him, you know, as people cry out to him. Jesus, on the other hand, also is a teacher of justice. Who is the number one teacher on the doctrine of hell in the Bible? Jesus. If Jesus didn't talk about hell, we would know practically zero about hell. Almost everything we know about the doctrine of hell comes from the mouth of Jesus. Uh, he is the, the model of perfect love, and he is the example of, of God's, of the Father's justice. So the character of God, from the evaluation of God, is also our motivation. That God is actually, God is watching us, and that, that is a kind of motivation for us. It's an important thing. Um, the, uh, the, the, we're, we're to have this thing called reverent fear. That the, that the Father is watching, and he's, uh, he's evaluating. And uh, this is something that, um, again, I, I prefer to be motivated by positive things, but the Bible does talk about the fear of the Lord, and it does talk about the fear of the Lord being uh, the beginning of wisdom. 
And so this is something that maybe needs to be a part of our vocabulary. Again, do you, do you know God? Do you fear God? Do you, do you acknowledge that he is a judge who judges justly? And that is a kind of motivation uh, also in the Bible. Um, the motivation also comes from the price of our purchase. And now we're talking powerful motivation. Uh, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold to be redeemed from the empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. The blood of Christ becomes a powerful motivation for us. Uh, that, that Jesus, uh, what does it mean that someone would actually love us that much? That he would literally lay down his life for us. Um, and that too was a part of the Father's plan. That Christ was chosen before the creation of the world for that task. The Father and the Son, before this world was created, had a beautiful relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. There was no need. God did not make you because he needed fellowship. God did not make you because he was incomplete in any way. Uh, God made you for his glory to be in a relationship with him, just like the Father's in a relationship with the Son, the Son in its relationship with the Spirit. They had a beautiful relationship, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, before the world began. But... Knowing what it would cost him, he determined to make this world and to make you. And Christ was chosen for this plan before the creation of the world to make you holy. Um, the motivation finally uh, also comes from the solidity of the promise. Verse 23. Um, as all flesh is like the grass, but the word of the Lord stands forever. What do I mean the solidity of the promise? That when, when God says something, it's true. And in the Bible, there are all kinds of promises in the Bible. And by the way, if you don't know the promises, you can't claim the promises of God. And so when you're going through that hard season or that tough time, you need to know what the Word of God promises. And then when you see God answer your prayers, then that's how your faith is built. The promise and the belief come together, hand in hand. And I want you to think about that. This is... This is one of the primary reasons people ask why. Why does God bring trouble into my life or trial into my life? Okay, In the midst of your trial, you cling to the promises of God. You have to believe the word of God. Now, if I'm not going through a trial, you see, belief and faith is just an idea. It's just a, it's just a word. It's just a concept. But when I'm literally going through trouble, I have to claim the promise. And so the belief and the reality of life come Face to face. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called true faith. This is not cheap grace. This is costly grace uh, where your, your security has been purchased and the real life in which these sorts of things are lived out. Um, that's the way uh, my life has been. I've had to learn, again, about those promises in real life situations, what that means uh, by the testing of faith. And, you know... Um, Sometimes, sometimes we fail and then we learn through that, right? I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember, and I've been a pastor for 19 years. And just a couple of weeks ago, I got into a situation where I felt threatened, and, and I began becoming anxious about it. And who knows the promises of God better than me? I couldn't shake it. I just, 
I, I was anxious, and I'm trying to pray it through, and I'm trying to claim the promises, and I finally, I sent an email, email out to all my elders, and I just said, this is what I'm feeling right now, and I am struggling. Please pray for me. And they said they would pray for me, and uh, so they prayed for me, and they, and I talked to a few people about it, and I exercised, and, uh, and God answered my prayers. But I didn't want to struggle. I hate struggling. I hate that feeling of the promise is there. But I don't believe the promise right now because I'm struggling. And then God hears your prayer and God sees your struggle and he meets you in your need and you begin to realize in a fresh way, even when I struggle, you see, the promise is still real. The promise is secure. Uh, by the way, that's why we have to tell the stories, and you have to tell your stories. And the more you see over the course of your lifetime that the promise of God meets the real world situations of life, your faith will grow stronger and stronger and stronger. You'll be able to believe the gospel that is true for you. Well, what is the ultimate roadblock to maturity? It says in chapter 2, therefore, and he's connecting now this call for maturity and holiness now here's the therefore. What's the problem? Okay, here's the action. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Uh, the number one roadblock to uh, maturity um, is not from without, but it's from within. I'm my own worst enemy, and you're your own worst enemy. Um, you know, it's funny, we talked about uh, the, uh, David was talking about the, the Myers-Briggs today, and one of the things he mentioned about it, about one of those types, which I am, uh, one of those types, very susceptible to blame other people, and I am a recovering blamer. I, I'm Stu, and I'm a blamer. You say, I'm Stu. You know, that's it, I'm a recovering blamer. I can blame anybody for anything. Because that's the whole point of life, right? Is to show that it's not my fault. Yeah. It's somebody else's fault. And, uh, and so I've, I've got a million schemes to show somehow it wasn't my fault. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Sounds a little bit like Bart Simpson. And, and, and I can be that way. But the Bible says that my number one problem is not you. It's not my kids. And it's not my wife. It's not my church. It's not my elders. It's not my neighbor. It's me me. Um, and so we become our own idol there. Um, pride. Uh, Robert Rayburn, an old friend of this conference uh, and a pastor, he wrote this. He said, pride is the idolatry of the self. It is the nature of pride as competition with God. The displacing of God by the self at the center that has led many Christian thinkers through the ages to regard pride as the mother sin, the essential element in all other sin. What's my problem? I love myself too much, and I don't love God enough, and I don't love you enough. That's why God says, if we're going to spin this thing around, here's the way it's going to work. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, I know there is such a thing as self-hatred, and it, it plays out in our culture in a variety of ways. I want to say that that's a, again, it is a real problem. It's not a predominant problem in the world. 
It's not a predominant problem for most of you and your friends. The predominant problem is not that I don't love myself enough, it's that I love myself way too much. And this is the way I see myself. Um, I want life to revolve around me, and I can't get all of you to cooperate. Now, as you think about that, um, that can be just overwhelming. Uh, it can be very, very discouraging to think that my greatest problem is, is me. Um, we do something every Sunday in church. Uh, we have a time for confession of sin, and we get on our knees and we confess our sins before the Lord. And uh, as, we, as we do that, uh, one of the things that one of the uh, pastors says from time to time, says, you know, when we're confessing, you're not telling God anything he doesn't already know. In fact, he knows a lot more than you're confessing. What you're doing is reminding yourself of who you are, and then we remind ourselves of who God is. And God is a God of grace. And so I'm confessing sin, and I'm thinking about how I failed God this week and how I'm really not worth his grace. But the words of grace come anyway. And then he says something kind of like this. He says, that, but this is the beauty of the gospel, that the Father relates to you exactly the way he sees his son. And when he looks at you, what does he see? Through the lens of the gospel, he sees Jesus. And, and this is where it's very important. If you ever doubt God's love for you, here's the question you ask. Does the father love the son? If you ever doubt God's satisfaction with you, is the father satisfied with the son? Okay? And that's the question of the gospel. You see, the Father always loves the Son. He has loved the Son from all eternity past. The Father is satisfied with the Son. He has always been satisfied with the Son from eternity past. The Father is pleased with the Son. He is perfectly pleased with the Son. And when you have faith in Christ, when the Father looks at you, that's what he sees. He sees the Son, and he looks at you, and he says, I am perfectly pleased perfectly pleased I look at me and I'm not perfectly pleased I need to hear the gospel over and over and over again that I might be spurred on toward maturity that's why we do something else also at our church um, we take communion every Sunday and how many of you do communion in your churches every Sunday okay that's pretty cool um, when I grew up, I was in a church that did communion four times a year, and a lot of churches did communion very sparingly. But now a lot of churches have communion much more frequently, and a lot of churches recognize the benefit of communion. And one of the things that communion does for us is it forces us to take inventory of where we stand with God and, and whether we believe the gospel. And... Uh, one of the things about communion we talk about is what it means to be fit for communion. And if you understand that you're a sinner and you're broken and you need Jesus, then the Bible says you're fit. Come on down, take communion. It's for you. If for some reason you're resting or relying upon something else, upon your own honesty, upon your own good works, upon your own intelligence or education, upon your own church membership, upon the fact that you're at a youth camp and you've been baptized. 
upon any other fact, then the Bible says you shouldn't come because you're not ready. But if you feel broken, if you feel sick in your sins and you know that you need Jesus, you're the perfect candidate. You're the one he wants to have at his table. I'm going to ask some elders to come forward at this time as they bring some uh, communion elements forward, and we are going to take communion together. And that's the very simple question you need to ask yourself today. Do I really believe this gospel? If we're honest with ourselves, every person in this room will say, I failed God today. I failed him in many ways and in many times. That's not the test. The test is, do you recognize your need? Do you recognize your brokenness? And do you believe the promise of God that the Father loves you through the Son and claim that promise through Jesus? If that's your hope tonight, then we want you to come and we want you to participate at this table. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to come forward, take a piece of bread, to dip it in the cup, to be reminded that this is the purchase. You were purchased, just like 1 Peter says, through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's a high cost. And uh, a very high cost. And yet, I want you to know this. The son did ask the father if there was another way. 